Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number THX1381. We're getting very close mm-hmm. to that classic Stormtrooper identification code. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what was it? Oh, 1138, of course, because it's uh, the George Lucas film. Oh, dear me. <laughs> Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. And our episode is entitled Fet First. Our podcast title is The French Dispod. And mm-hmm. actually, it's pretty easy to guess what we're going to be talking about today, isn't it? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and welcome back to our podcaster, Kayla Larson, as well. Yes. Welcome back, Kayla. Happy to have you back. Yeah. And she'll have to have listened to us monologuing on assorted occasions as she's doing the podcast over the past month or so. But here we are, both back duetting again, the the Bobby Fett and the Fennec Shan. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Actually, I've taken the helmet off because Boba Fett can take his helmet off. That is not his way. Okay. Interesting. I'm, I'm not the Jandalorian today. All right, we've had seven episodes of the Book of Boba. Boba? Boba? Bobby Fett? (laughs) No, it's not Bobby from The Expanse, although she wears armour too. Uh, And that's all been on Disney+. And I know, look, sorry, we've been doing a few Disney Plus ones lately. It's just the way it's worked out, essentially. Mm. Yeah. Sometimes there's just a lot more content that we're really keen to chat about and it happens to be on one particular service. Mm. We do try to spread it out, so we do promise we'll turn our attention to other services soon. Well, last week we we extensively covered the Art Spiegelman's book Mouse and that has mm, absolutely exactly. nothing to do with Disney apart from they both have mice in them. So. The mouse connection. No, exactly. Yeah. So back to the book of Boba Fett. And this is obviously a spin-off of The Mandalorian, although it does stand alone. Well, it's not a Standalorian, but it does sit there by itself. <laughs> and, look, a lot depends upon how much you love The Mandalorian. Because mm, I imagine this is – they probably had this planned, yeah. but I'm sure the success of The Mandalorian has definitely meant that they were very keen to roll out another mm. – um, this this Book of Boba Fett series, I suppose. So you can watch this without having watched any Mandalorian. Is that fair to say? No. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. So you need to have some familiarity with Oh, that. yes. Yes. I, where are you in this? Am I wrecking this for you? Uh, no, no. So I had made the decision I wasn't going to be watching it week to week. It's something I'll probably now it's all out. It's all been released. I'll probably just catch up and maybe binge it over a couple of sessions. But I loved The Mandalorian. I feel like if this gets a little spoiled, it's on me because I've, you know, snoozed on it and only watching it late. So that's all good. I'm happy just to see more stuff happening in the world. And if it's the quality of The Mandalorian, I'm definitely keen to check it out, but it wasn't an urgent thing for me. Well, when they were filming this, they got two weeks into it, and <laughs> then they said, we're actually not filming the book, the uh, Mandalorian Season 3. 
This is the book of Boba oh. Fett. <laughs> oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. So, but it is that closely tied that people were like, oh, yes, this is an extension of the Mandalorian world. Yeah. Um, mm. okay. Well, you know, I mean, partly it pl- takes place on uh, Tatooine. So, obviously, oh, okay. there's yeah. that connection to start with. And mm-hmm. we've we've been through this earlier on, having a quick review of it. Uh, Tamura Morrison stars as the title character, not book, but Boba Fett, <laughs> and he's got uh, Ming Na Wen playing uh, Fennec Shand, his um, beholden sidekick uh, to okay. IT. But actually, it feels like she's in charge a lot of the times. Sometimes that's the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly is here, and it's all set on Tatooine, and basically. It follows the adventures of Boba Fett because, of course, we've seen him in The Mandalorian. Mm. Uh, just a quick recap, he his armour was taken from him after he escaped from the Sarlacc pit by the Jawas, and the Jawas sold it to the Tatooine Marshal, if you remember mm. that, and he was getting around in it for a while, but eventually Boba Fett got it back. Mm. So <laughs> this story has him rather disillusioned with the whole bounty hunter trade. He has become decided to become a crime boss in, oh. on Tatooine. Natural career path. You go, oh, bounty hunter, my options are drying up. What's a reasonable career change for me? Ooh. Crime boss fits the bill. Yeah, well, it does in, because there's a power vacuum there uh, mm-hmm. with um, Jabba the Hutt being strangled by Princess Leia mm-hmm. and then Jabba's 2IC, he's gone too. And mm-hmm. so there's a power vacuum there. The big palace is mostly empty. Yeah. He spotted an opportunity and took it. I respect that. <laughs> the Rancor pit underneath it was empty for a while. Okay. But oh. it's been resupplied. Chains hung up. Yeah. Yeah. Little, little big empty water dish. Oh. oh. <laughs> and it has been uh, replenished. Though. There is a new Rancor living beneath uh, Bobber's palace and mm-hmm. supplied by Danny Trejo. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, nice. so sorry, there are going to be lots of spoilers in this. Uh, I'll try, well, it's really hard for me not to in this case because we've we've had the whole seven episodes. Uh, we will see Timothy Oliphant again as Cobb Vant for the Marshal. Yes, fan favourite, Megan favourite, yeah, happy there. to see. And it's no wonder because we also get a whole lot of backstory of what happened to Boba between escaping from the Sarlacc pit and the present day in the Star Wars story, which is uh, sometime after uh, Return of the Jedi. So the Empire has basically mm. fallen, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. All of the characters that we knew in Star Wars, but, God, <laughs> the uh, three movies, you know, Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. The sequels, the pre, whatever the hell you want to call them, all of those characters are still at the same ages, more or less. So, as okay. as we saw in the Mandalorian, Luke Skywalker was still the same sort of Jedi master that he was back then, and not the older Mark Hamill <laughs> version. Yes, the later three trilogy esque. Yeah, yes, yeah. Yeah. and we did yeah. see Luke in that in the Mandalorian, of course. So. Uh, all right, so they were all set up on Tatooine. We've seen the backstory with the Sand People, which made me think that the book of Boba Fett was actually going to be uh, House Fett of Tatooine. You know, it's like Dune. He's becoming <laughs> yeah. the the saviour of the the Tuscan Raiders who've had a lot more added into their, their uh, sense of, of culture rather than just being mm. uh, uh, dangerous savages. 
and yeah, just drop. fleshed out a bit, given a proper backstory. Yeah, well, it's a whole culture, and you know, and Boba Fett became part of a tribe there up until they got massacred. Uh, and then he went on a rampaging rancor of revenge for a while. Well, not quite, but um, so he's all set up there. He's having problems with other local gang bosses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also it comes with the, with the job. All comes with the job, and also the Pike Syndicate, mm-hmm. who are a big off-world consortium who want to run Spice. And yeah, there's Spice on Tatooine. Wow, interesting. I see. We're getting a yeah. bit of crossover here. I talked about a, a Spice train, actually, a, a repulsor lift train that runs through the desert that they had to stop in earlier episodes. Mm. We've discussed that already. It was really good story it was like it coming something out of serenity mm-hmm. you know a tr- the train heist kind of thing there's only seven episodes in this season mm. and at least two of those episodes in fact three of those episodes are actually taken up with the doings of the mandalorian <gasps> and uh, a certain uh, baby <laughs> i mean give the fans what they want yeah, am i right exactly. i mean that that if yeah you got to if the strings are there to be pulled pull them and then uh, oh, no they're, yeah. they're muppets that's there's no strings so it's, uh, you know. it's yes it's all it's all computerized <laughs> uh, yeah so this is about Boba Fett becoming the the new daimyo of a particular city in on Tatooine an area becoming the, the gang boss of that and to do that he needs minions mm-hmm. and he has lots of minions he has. <laughs> Uh, Minion Narwen, playing Fennec Shand, the mercenary and assassin, whom Boba Fett's life saved. He sa- sorry, Boba saved her, her life um, by having her after got, after she gets gut shot, she is rebuilt cybernetically. Oh, oh, yeah. So obviously that in, that indebts her. It must cost a lot for those parts. It's not cheap, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So she's indebted to Boba, and she. Is so good. She is always the cavalry in my eyes from uh, Agents of Shield, and so she proves in in this story as well as many an episode where you think, just send the cavalry in first, you know, mm. just get her to do it, and it'll all work out. Just go there, lead with her. Uh, I think one of the things that I like about this show is that it isn't actually focused upon Boba Fett, and this is probably going to grate against fans who have this i don't know this uh, idea about the the mystery of the the yes. galaxy's fiercest bounty hunter i have none of that yeah mm. this tell it tells you a lot that i have no interest in boba fett before now bef- right. before the mandalorian okay. it tells you yeah. a lot about that character because he's he's one of star wars few armored characters mm. who have a personality of their own apart from darth vader yeah. At least back in the main series, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. And I had no interest in him. So mm. tell me mm. something, you know, because if it's an armoured character, I am there. Yes. Yeah, true. That's a good point. That is your weakness. Um, but, so, but not, yeah. But not for this idiot, you know. But watching him in, in, in Mandalorian uh, and this, I'm really interested in the character. And why? Yeah. Not because of the old bounty hunter stuff. We've already had all of that with the Mandalorian. They've got to try and make that separate. But because he's an old bounty hunter who's had enough. He's, yeah, he's, he's, he's yeah. figured out that, that being the employee in this field of, of work sucks, basically. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, been he's ready to start his own business, as it were. He's been betrayed. He's had 
mm-hmm. interfering busybodies, you know, those meddling kids and their and their walkie. He would have got yeah. away with it if it wasn't for all of that. <laughs> and damn those kids. Damn those kids, yeah. And here he is trying to make his own new life and new uh, to begin again, but he's also had this interesting sea change with the, yeah. well, desert sea change, with the, the tribes of Tatooine, with the sand people. Mm. And I think that's been very interesting for the character. It's it's mellowed him out a little bit. He spends a great deal of time in these episodes stuck in a Bacta tank mm. where his uh, many injuries keep being fixed up by the whatever the heck it is, medical sort of facilities. And I think it's changed the character for the better and, and fleshed him out quite a bit. I do like the fact that he's kind of a little bit more portly in the armour. You know, that's, that's, mm-hmm, that's cool. Mm-hmm. And to me this feels more mature, and that's always been the problem with Star Wars. It has been its grace at some stage because it, it has played as a kid's show for a lot of the, the, the time. Uh, sure. But here I feel it's a little bit more mature, so I'm enjoying it as a, as a space western with a, a guy who's a little bit over the hill. There's some, yeah. Somebody says that to him at some stage and he says, well, we all are, you know, <laughs> and I like that. Yeah. And he's coming to terms with the fact that um, his dad was killed by the Jedi Knights and, you know, that his father was the pattern for the clone army. You know, Jango Fett was the mm-hmm. model for mm-hmm. all of that. Jango Fett. Jango yeah. Fett, yeah. So. I think all of these things are in play here, and I quite liked it. Do they all land in, mm. in this one series? No, no. Right. I feel like they're saving the Sand People connections, especially the Tusken Raiders, uh, for a further story. Actually, we don't know. I can't remember. what I don't think we do know what they call themselves. Mm. You know, Tusken Raider is because they raided a town called Fort Tusken. Right. You know, Sand People is just generic. What do they call themselves? I, I must find that out someday. Maybe just the people, you know. Yeah. Anyway, um, and the 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 whole sort of gathering the minions with well, Fennec Shand, mm. uh, the Rancor, yeah. 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 <laughs> two of the um, are they called Gamorans? The the the, the sort of the, uh, the the pork, the pig faced characters, the big oh yes, two of those. I can picture, yeah, uh, a torture droid called Eight D Eight, which is voiced by Matt Berry from. The IT crowd. <laughs> nice. Nice. Very nice. And he's also got a, uh, and I love this, a, a Wookiee monster. Well, a Wookiee gladiator, I should say. Uh, Crescenton. I suppose you could actually sort of go Crescenton in Wookiee or something like that, played by uh, Carrie Jones, who used to be a, a gladiator, the, uh, the Wookiee that is, and now works for Boba. Um, and you've got a bunch of space Vespa mods. And I do mean mods because they've all been cyborged a little bit. Right. And they ride around on these Vespa speeder bikes, basically, cool. in bright colours. And they're all, you know, young adults, teens, et cetera, who, who are yeah. rebelling against, I guess, the rebellion <laughs> in a way because they're <laughs> the government now. But And I've heard a bit of fan criticism about the bikes, which are very brightly coloured and it looks more like something that Squirrel Girl would ride around on. In fact, I've okay. seen I've seen one enterprising uh, custom modification f- um, action figure maker modify his squirrel girl- girls. <laughs> oh, scooter. that's a deep cut. Yeah, that's, yeah, right. Okay, <laughs> to do that. Anyway, um, I love that idea because it's exactly the kind of thing that teens do. They rebel mm-hmm. against the grungy aesthetic of Star Wars, and they go yeah. for these blinged out rides. 
the opposite. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're quite right. So they get this whole bunch of, of, of different uh, minions that work into the, the mix, including Timothy Oliphant's Cobb Vanth. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and there's a whole lot of other elements in here, the most important being obviously the, the heavy Mandalorian presence in here. Uh, and uh, and I just mean our Mandalorian, so <laughs> our guy. Yeah, yeah, you know. So that's that's important, of course. Uh, so um, Dajaran is in there, uh, and as well as Grogu, of course. And, of course. and, and we see the uh, the uh, the evolution of Grogu because last we saw him, he was off of Luke Skywalker being trained, mm-hmm. and we do go through that. Oh, cool. Okay. Oh, yeah, this is why cool. this is why people are going. Oh my god! This is not the book of Boba Fett. It's the Mandalorian season three. Yeah, if, yeah, yeah. And it is a, a little bit. And if that's all right with me, so if it's if you're okay with that, you're going to be copacetic, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's all part of the one world, I guess, yeah. and it's it's meant to be something that you're just continually engaging with this world building that they're doing. So yeah. And I think if you if you let go your feelings and and think about it, they're not going anywhere. Mm. There's going to be more seasons of these, so they're yeah. developing that. And yeah. you could say maybe a little bit that it's like that, uh, it's like the Marvel Studios movies where you get the little bit of um, obligatory, let's move the plot on forward so we can reach the next Avengers movie. So we'll have a chunk of this movie devoted to that. Yes, like Captain America Civil War being really like an Avengers, you know, 2.5 or whatever, yeah. 1.5, whatever not it was, the, yeah. Not that Samuel L. Jackson playing a Jedi Master in Star Wars and also Nick Fury has anything to do with it. It does feel like actually that Disney is turning the Star Wars universe into a, you know, they're taking a leaf from the uh, the Marvel Studios book. Well, yeah, and I mean, I think it's quite smart in a way because you've got the movie franchises and then they've gone, hey, we want to have a TV universe going and we there's plenty of opportunities of stories to tell and build, build out that world. So, And I think the Mandalorian success and the tone of that really set the scene and made people go, oh, hey, this Star Wars TV thing could be really good. And again, I mean, it's John Favreau bringing the quality, kick-starting things. So I think, I think – Based on that success, they're right to pour more money into this, um, and and you know people are always going to be be willing to give it a shot. I think, even though people love to criticise, I do think um, people are excited. Yeah, well, I guess it also plays to the people like me who haven't really been interested in the Star Wars movies since <sighs> Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, I know Rogue One was good. But, you know, so it really is. Yeah. If it had been this quality all along, I would have stuck with it as a, as a fan and not just sort of dropped in and had a look at the movie as a duty sort of thing. As they go yeah, along. well, and I think too, like you mentioned the more mature tone, I do think The Mandalorian started out being much more serious and gritty and trying to do that kind of space opera serious thing, whereas, you know, the movies are still a little bit campy. And so I think it's another time for them to play with tone as well, which I think has worked out. And another aspect of this that I enjoy is it does what I actually wanted them to do. I didn't want to see prequels after the first three movies. I wanted to see how the how the Republic handled becoming the government, which sounds really, yeah. really boring, but I was interested in seeing it grow up a bit. Yeah, well, and that's it. We've got so many timelines we're playing with that there's gaps. So now they can go in and start filling those timeline gaps. Yeah, so there's a a very good feeling of that, I I, I think, in this. And that's what I I feel like. This is the Star Wars I actually wanted to see. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. And here it is, so thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I want to play a track here and, well, discovered that uh, Tamura Morrison is also a singer. His uncle was a singer and Mm. here he is singing in Maori. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just it's just a, a love song, you know. But it sounds really cool, and the fact that it's Boba Fett singing it, and also, by the way, uh, Tamara Morrison was um, Aquaman's dad in the oh. yeah yeah in the DC universe. So, a bit of both, really. <laughs> so here we go with um, El Lipo. In the marmalade forest. forest. Between the make-believe tree. G'day, I'm Brent McKenzie. I played an elf in Lord of the Rings. My dad played Elendil the King. You're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R. And I have one thing to say. My name is Figwit the Elf. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Smooth. Very nice. Tamira Morrison, Boba Fett, singing a Maori version of a love song from New Zealand. Yeah, E Ipo, I think, is how he said. That's quite fascinating he's got a whole album <laughs> good good find yes. you love finding uh actors with secret album drops yeah well maybe not so secret if you happen to be a new zealander but um i've never mm-hmm. heard it before and they're thinking great i'd like i'd like to have him playing something like that over the sound system in the jab of the hut's palace talking about the book of boba fett here on mm-hmm. and that is on disney plus seven episodes have uh, dropped already and that's mm-hmm. that's it actually for the season and i have no difficulty in loving the show because it was fun in the way that yeah. Star Wars should be fun. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So much fun. And <laughs> some great humor in it. There's one moment where the Mandalorian has to get on a commercial flight because, mm-hmm. of course, he lost the Razor Crest. And so he's sort of forced to just catch a bus. Basically. <laughs> oh, God. Well, they make him give up his weapons. <laughs> uh, I get that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Half an hour later, (laughs) you know, classic joke, classic joke. And, and, you know, John Favreau's sense of humour just shines through here. And, all, of course, of all the other directors in there, Bryce Dallas Howard and Robert Rodriguez. Mm. uh, Nice. You know, so they're they're all having a great time with this space western thing. Yeah. It is perfectly judged in that respect. And because I don't have any luggage with Boba Fett as such, I can just walk past all of that stuff. I just go through yeah. through that that queue in customs and just go right through to just enjoying the show, which I have. Yeah, yeah. Of course, that does mean that when things show up that are Easter eggs, I haven't got the foggiest idea, which is an odd position for me. Um, it's true, yeah. And uh, like, there's this um, bounty hunter who shows up, who, or a gunslinger. Let's call him a, a, a blaster slinger. That's very mm-hmm. that's very cumbersome. Who's got a big broad hat and he's not a not a human being, but some kind of um, alien with big red eyes and stuff and blue skin mm-hmm. and all that sort of thing. And all the Star Wars fans will obviously be going, <gasps> and I'm just mm. going, oh yeah, gunslinger, I get it. <laughs> Let's move on from that. I've since looked it up. I can do all that sort of stuff and that. And, you know, he's got another yeah. dopey Star Wars name, like Egg on Me Face or something like that, you know, <laughs> the, the usual sort of thing. I'm pinching that yeah. from a Star Wars writer, actually. <laughs> made me laugh when I saw it. And, of course, Grogu, Grogu, and, uh, Grogu and, uh, and the Mandalorian are back again, and it's great. And there's a, a really strong story in there because Grogu is offered – the choice 
continue Jedi training because you need to, mm-hmm. you need to start young, really young, like, mm-hmm. you know, 50 or whatever he is. Yes. And either do that or go off with the, back to the Mandalorian. Mm. Well. <laughs> now, if you think about it, uh, Grogu has survived Order 66 from the, the clone troopers massacring the Jedi Knights. Mm. And the Jedi couldn't the Jedi couldn't protect him really. Although I yeah. think obviously one of them did, but he saw Jedi die in front of him. Yeah. But the Mandalorian, he never let him down. Yeah. So what would you yeah. do? Well, what would you do? Well, what would you do? Well, for me it's a question of the lightsaber or the armor. You know what question mm. I'm going to – which which side I'm going to fall on for that. Yeah, that's interesting. I reckon I'd go the lightsaber personally, but yes, – um, Well, we shall see. Mm. <laughs> All right, so that's the, the Book of Boba Fett. I've really enjoyed that show just as I did the two seasons of The Mandalorian, and I look forward to a, another season, and maybe, maybe Boba Fett will colonise The Mandalorian's next season too. Maybe. If that's possible. It all plays out to pretty much where you'd expect it. I didn't have too many surprises roll out of this. But like I said, I had fun. It's a fun ride, even though you know where you – the destination. Yeah, no surprises along the journey. Yeah, Yeah, that's something to be said for things being enjoyable and just having a good time with the show, Mm, I think. mm. Now, one of the great things about uh, The Mandalorian and The Book of Boba Fett is, of course, the music by uh, Ludwig Goransson. Joseph Shirley also contributed to this one, and it's just Fennec and Boba. This is Neil Gaiman. It's well past 2000 AD, but Tharg still listens to Zero G. Joseph Shirley and Ludwig Goransson, The Book of Boba Fett, Volume 1. Fennec and Boba. Nice. (laughs) As we ride off into the double sunset there on Tatooine and turn to Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch, also on Disney+. Plus. Yes, indeed. So we're going to now ride through the cobbled streets of a small fictional French town. That's next on the agenda. So, yeah, we thought we'd take a little bit of a look at Wes Anderson's latest film, The French Dispatch, long title. The French Dispatch of the Liberty, Kansas Evening Sun. (laughs) So it is his 10th film. So big fan of his. I mean, as are a lot of, I think, a lot of the world. If you would like to check it out, it is on Disney Plus and still uh, showing in some cinemas too if you're comfortable to go out to the cinema. Uh, And if you are an Anderson fan and keen to hit up some of his uh, older classics, Disney Plus has also got The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, Rushmore, Isle of Dogs, Darjeeling Limited, The Grand Budapest Hotel and the Royal Tenenbaums all available on there for you to watch, which is great. So if you get into a bit of a Wes mood, you can check out some of those old favourites or plug any gaps you might have in his filmography. So this latest story is one that he has written or conceived along with Roman Coppola, Hugo Guinness and Jason Schwartzman. And he is again helming this one as director, writer and producer. It's this film is kind of very nostalgic one and in some ways it's sort of about the golden age of journalism and it is very very heavily inspired by the New Yorker. So you can tell I think from the promotional materials and even the stylized elements of the French Dispatch of the Kansas Liberty Kansas Evening Sun how it's stylized in the film. The art is very New Yorker-esque of the New Yorker covers and the New Yorker cover art. 
and a lot of the story and characters are somewhat inspired by their real life counterparts. And throughout the film, I had had the suspicion the New Yorker was kind of <laughs> revolving around the, the realm of this film in terms of the inspiration. And then at the end, it does thank a lot of people who work on and are associated with the New Yorker. So it became quite clear that this is very strongly um, inspired and connected with Wes's love of the New Yorker. So it's an anthology film uh, told in three main parts, three segments, but it's framed by the idea that um, the founding editor, and this isn't a spoiler, this is the premise of the film, the founding editor of this paper, The French Dispatch, which it's set in Ennui sur Blasé, <laughs> which is a funny, if you know French, it's funny, um, <laughs> fake name of the town. Uh, so Ennui Sur Blase, and um, they write about life and dispatches back to the uh, evening sun of Kansas in the United States. And so the editor, um, played by Bill Murray, is Arthur Howitzer Jr., and he dies. And so as his kind of his wish is that the paper will wrap up, upon his death. And so this is about them pulling together the last issue and it's kind of a visualized filmed version of the stories that go into that edition and the newsroom and the experience of those writers and the stories that they're bringing. So they're very distinct segments, very vividly imagined as you can assume from Wes Anderson and his style and littered with, uh, a cast of very heavily weighted cast. We've got a lot of his old favorites in there and just heaps of heavy hitters filling out every single segment of, um, of this film. Even though I know some of his films are quite family friendly, uh, just give you a little content warning in that the film, while whimsical does involve things like mature themes and, and a bit of nudity. So just flagging that with you to make your own decision on the appropriateness of viewing for certain parties. I saw this a little while ago, and Rob, you've caught it on streaming. I'm interested, before we delve into a bit about who appears in what, um, what were your first kind of impressions of the film? What were your expectations going in? Because I know he's one of the directors, kind of like Tarantino, where I know I have a certain expectation whenever I go into a new film from him. Um, so I'm interested, yeah, what your view was. Well, it's funny that one of the stories is about an artist and another story is about rebels with a manifesto mm -hmm. and so on. You know, it's about the artistic process in a lot of ways. And I feel like Anderson's paring down and refining and really getting towards what he actually wants to do in filmmaking. Mm, Some of his other sure. films have been a little bit more of a concession to mundane, the mundane reality of, of movie making. You know, they've had plots. <laughs> so, but, but this one, and it is an anthology movie, so it does have a plot, but has several mm. plots. But to me, this one, he's really let loose upon all of his favourite stylistic tropes. And so he's been given a long, long leash, hasn't he? Yes. It's very clear that they've said, we trust you implicitly, do what you want. Yeah, take that leash from the Isle of Dogs and just continue. Yeah, exactly. So my my hot take on this it's as if Norman Rockwell paintings were on the cover of the Prairie Home Companion, an issue mm -hmm. that's guest edited by the Cohen brothers with maybe Quentin Tarantino doing some cartoons in the back. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. this is the way, the thing that it feels like to mm -hmm. me. And ah, so much in this, so all of these, let's just, let's just, let's just have a quick drill down into some of the tropes. Mm -hmm. 
before we yes. get you know i mean the cast is important too but you know this is where's anderson's film and it feels like even though that is a heavyweight cast they are all but players on his stage mm-hmm. his moving stage everything is in this um let's let's quickly go through it the mesmeric music mm-hmm. the cutaway vehicles where you, mm-hmm. where you see the whole vehicle, the interior, and you can go from room to room on a tracking sideways sort of dolly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the In this case, you know, like, like, the, like the sub in The Life Aquatic, but yeah. in this case there's also a very strong sense of design that comes from like a, a fantasy Jacques Tati France, you know. Mm-hmm. There's, that, yep. there's a couple of places in this that I thought, yeah, I know that. I've seen that in playtime yes. and, you know. Uh, there's – a fascination for portable manual typewriters, which I've seen before in his movies. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's his fave, one of his fave tropes. Yep, yep. Fanatical <laughs> control of depth of field. Yes. You know, so he will, it's all about peripheral vision and mm-hmm. also about tracking sideways, rigidly sideways, not at an angle, and yep. in and out, you know. Yeah. And also that symmetry, that fearful symmetry that he has and composing mm-hmm. the, the, the picture frame more than anyone I can think of in cinema even Stanley Kubrick wasn't that uh, spot on. I was just thinking of Kubrick and I was going to argue, but I actually do think I agree because he was very much point perspective, but Wes cares about everything in the frame and where everything is at a specific time. He loves stories within stories mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and great dialogue that you have to really listen to. And you just laugh at some of the lines in this. It's incredible. You have to be paying attention. And I do mean that in a good way in that you can't, your brain can't be slackened when you watch this film. Mm. <laughs> you want to be really ready to engage with the content. He loves black and white. So in this case, we've got a lot of scenes that are in black and white, occasionally giving you eye-popping relief of colour that's yeah very much deliberately Hergé Tintin palette, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he loves to have... Props drawn across the frame as if you were in a theatre. Yep. And, he, and including the entire sides of buildings, which I think yep. is just a fascinating thing to do. In fact, he takes that symmetry that he uses even further. He does split screen in this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he likes to say this was 50 years ago and this is now. Yeah. He even references peripheral vision in it. So he has a wink and the, and the actual character who does it winks. Yeah, so he knows. He, oh, he knows, yeah. And tableaus. You remember, uh, well, I was going to say you remember, but <laughs> you'd have to have a good memory for this. Artistic tableaus used to be a thing way, way back, dawn of photography and so on. You'd get a whole bunch of people together and they pose as, as gods or something. They do that yeah, so yeah. much in this film. And it's one of those have films you just want to stop before? and look at it. Yeah, we've seen that Yeah. Before. In one of his films, though, because I had thought maybe there's a sequence that I think we're both thinking of. I don't think he's ever done anything like that before. Maybe I'm just not I think I've remembering seen it. Some f- freeze tableaus, and there's usually one person moving at the side who sort of looks at the camera. Yeah, but he might have used it before in one of his films, but I can't remember. It, anyway. If not, it is a logical and further development of his style. hundred percent, it fits very well. Then there's that. I mean, trope of point of view vehicle rides, bicycles, wheelchairs, scooters, even just walking with a map. He loves that. <laughs> yeah, and the old look down, like it's you're looking at your own hands and you're holding some cute, you know, perfectly designed manual, but it's it's in the film. Silhouettes, That's another silhouette scenes, mm. really, really good silhouette scenes. And you just look at it and go, that is so classy. 
and there we go. We've just listed like twenty tropes or something that that he's he leans into, yeah. backs up to, drives away with, gets into the elevator and shares it all the way to the twelfth floor. It's beautifully done. I just watched this film and I'm going, wow, this yeah. is art. Here's the thing, though, Rob. Yeah, and I'm showing my hand a bit here. Yes, I agree with you. I think this film is extraordinarily well made. He's definitely got an artistic eye, which we know from his other nine films, right? Beautifully made. Use of cinema is spectacular. The fact that you can turn something that, you know, is about words on a page and really bring to life this idea of these stories in in a filmic way. But I just feel like in some parts, I mean, like you said, we just listed 10 of his tropes. It almost felt too Wes Anderson-y. It felt like someone a parody of a Wes Anderson film sometimes. Like I just felt it was slightly too much, which says a lot because, I mean, some of his other films, like Steve Zissou is very like Wes Anderson, if we're calling that a style, which I think it is. But there's something about this one, and maybe it's the anthology thing. Maybe it's that that's also made me feel a bit disconnected from it and and did feel that some of those stylistic things actually brought a distance between me and the film. Yeah. I don't know, but look, I agree with you. It's a beautifully rendered film, and the he's he's very talented. I mean, I don't think we need me to say, but he's obviously very talented. But there was something a bit. It just felt like one too many layers of icing. It may be because you don't quite get the through line of one writer because it, it focuses upon the stories created by the writers for the magazine. Mm. for the uh, for the supplement and yes this is the thing because they're going from one to another and they're very distinct too very distinct but they are always about art and yeah. about the artistic process even if it's just that we feature the writers i actually think that mm. this film is one that you could split up into longer film or something like that maybe even though mm. this is mm. long enough Mm, uh, mm. So there is that distance to start with. You're not going to get to know each of the characters long enough to. Yes, yeah. I think, and uh, yeah, so I don't want to show, I don't want to talk too much about my thoughts. Maybe let's do a quick overview of what the three segments are about just to get a gist of it. Mm. So the first segment is the concrete masterpiece. And so that one follows, um, it stars Benicio del Toro. Adrian Brody, Tilda Swinton, and Leia Sado quite heavily. Um, and it's sort of, I mean, I won't say too much about the story, but it will, it's pretty much about a painter and his works of art and the interesting ways that he might receive commissions and fulfill those commissions. Um, while, I mean, I don't think it's a spoiler. I think it's part of the PR, but he is in prison. So He's, he's in more than a prison. He's in an asylum. Yeah, so it's and it's we're playing very much with that kind of dark, brutalist style, and then these his his artwork is kind of it's about him bringing a different style mm. and um and quality to the to the you know field of art. So I actually found that to be a fairly interesting one, very very arty, <laughs> love, very arty and cerebral. I love Adrian Brody in that. He's so, yeah, <laughs> he's the art dealer, and I was watching him work the set. And just saying, oh, did you, were you under instruction from Anderson? Of course you were. He yes. he moves towards uh, two uh, advisors on art who he's got. One of them is actually um, the Fonz, Henry Henry Winkler. Yes. Yes. And he moves through a room. There's a table in the room, and he walks forward as if he's a, a chess figure. 
So he goes sideways, then forwards, then sideways again. It's very ah, geometrical. And you know that Anderson's saying, this is how I want you to use this room. Yeah, 100%. He's been blocked that way. So that's the first segment. And the second segment is um, about the May 68 student protests. That one's called Revisions to a Manifesto, and that stars Francis McDormand as our writer, Timothy Chalamet as a revolutionary, um, and another uh, Lena Kudry as well. So that one's very much about student uprising and Francis McDormand going in and finding out a bit about what the protests are about and getting the perspective from inside, um, inside the kind of student association. That one was my favourite. Yeah, uh, Chalamet, with his wild, poetical, revolutionary hair, and yeah, <laughs> and uh, Linda Caudry as as Juliet, the one who uh, wears um, her scooter helmet all the time. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. I, it was great fun, and then of course Francis moving all the way through this as the writer. Yeah, being you know, and I mean, acting acting everybody out of out of sight with this. She's amazing in this. She's so great to watch. Her chemistry with Timothy as well, I think, elevates it a lot. But I mean, she's the standout. She, this this vignette, I really love. Oh, Christoph Waltz um, gets thrown in there too. Oh yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was watching that one, um, uh, Timothy, he looks like uh, Marat from the Death of Marat painting. Oh. Yeah, yeah, very much like that. In fact, he's wearing a, a, a towel as a turban at one stage and he's mm-hmm. in the bath and I'm just looking at that thinking, I know where you're, what you're doing with that one. Everything is on purpose for mm. sure. Uh, and the last one is the private dining room of the police commissioner. I did actually like this one as well. That one features heavily Jeffrey Wright, who I love. I've loved Jeffrey Wright since he played Basquiat years and years ago, but obviously he's been in Hunger Games and a whole bunch of stuff since then. Um, and Matthew Al- Amalric he's, and Stephen Park. And Jeffrey Wright is the Watcher's voice in the MCU animated series yes. What If. Yes, of course. And, and, yeah. Oh, my God, what a voice he's got. Oh. He's a great presence as well. Who else we got? William Defoe in there and Ed Norton and just, just as casual sort of step-ins, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, um, uh, what's her name? Sersha is in that one too, Sersha Ronan mm-hmm. um, as well. Always got to have a bit of Sersha in there. So, and then again around, so that one, sorry, so that one is about um, a famed chef He's uh, Jeffrey Wright's trying to get um, a meal from this famous chef who works for the police um, police commissioner, but there's a lot of different obstacles in the way, all kinds of weird things going on and people getting involved in kidnappings and so on and so forth. Nothing is quite as clear as just having a simple meal. Angelica Houston does the narration for the film and Bill Murray is there as the editor. Even gets to play. The, yes. Even gets to play the dead editor at one stage, and I'm sure that was in his contract. I want to be paid lying under a sheet. <laughs> yeah. Okay. See, yes. There is the framing of the newsroom scenes where we see them come together to talk about the stories, and Bill Murray gets to do his his piece as well. Um, oh, and Lizzie Moss. What you- Lizzie Moss is there as a copy editor. Yes. I wish she'd had a bit more of a role. Yeah. Yeah. So those are the three vignettes, I guess. We've already talked a little bit about our thoughts, but what what was your takeaway overall, Rob? I think that Wes Anderson was having a little bit of a go at himself as well Mm. Um, because that's built into the script as you go along. You hear 
write it as if you meant it to be that way, you know, mm-hmm. or meant it to be funny or something like that. And that's what I felt like. I'm thinking yeah. you're having a bit of a lend of us. You're actually pushing it to see how far you can go. And you know what? Yeah. I don't care because I just, <laughs> I just enjoyed it just for that. Just the, the pure cinema of it just blew me away. I'm thinking this yeah. is so much fun. I'm giggling and guffawing all the way through and just marvelling at it all because the, the, the texture, the signature of this film was so strong. And, yeah, I, I, I didn't necessarily engage with the stories, but that's not really all why I go to the cinema every time. I don't have to identify with the characters or – or like any of them at all, actually. So I just had a lot of fun watching this and spotting the stars. And you know. So, yeah, I, I, I put this on par with his other films. In fact, it could be outtakes from the other films. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. I, I personally didn't like it as much. I didn't think it's definitely not up there with my favourites of his. And for me, I think – I as well am okay to watch something that I'm not, there's no through line or it's a bit haphazard or I don't, I just didn't connect emotionally enough with the film. And, you know, even some of his other films are very heavy on style, but I always felt very, very much like I cared about what was happening in the film and I felt very engaged with it. And I think usually you get a sense of connection along with the whimsical elements. And I just didn't feel like I got that from it. And it was a bit disappointing. I thought the star was there, but ah. I, I wanted to feel, I wanted to feel more connected and care more about each story. And to be honest, like the vignettes I saw in the newsroom, that's the film I want to see. I want to see more about life at the French Dispatch. Like I love that we got these big ticket stories and how they were built. I think that's the ode he was trying to do, like the ode to journalism. Mm. But personally, I want to see the dynamics of the newsroom, Bill Murray being an editor. I want to see that film. But, yeah, I think it's obviously still a wonderful film. But, again, I, I prefer a lot of his others um, just for the, that emotional connection piece. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I love the the connection with poor old Bill's and the yeah and and even stuff like Isle of Dogs and Fantastic Mr Fox you you are very invested in those stories and 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 you care a lot about the outcome Mm. so yeah my my zero g yeah nah maybe rating would be (laughs) we I think mine is still a a yeah Mm. I would say watch it and make up your own mind it's a very well done film take your a game to it though make sure you know watch it give it a good a good watching because you'll learn so much about the art of filmmaking just from yeah don't don't watch it while you're doing your ironing like make it a real sit down focus Mm. make some popcorn put the lamp on yeah yeah that's the French Dispatch Screening on Disney Plus, along with a whole bunch of other Wes Anderson films too. Yeah, so you can have a little marathon for yourself. Mm. So what shall we go out with today? I think we'll do one of the big mesmeric tracks by Alexandre Desplat. <laughs> the French Dispatch original soundtrack album, The Private Dining Room of the Police mm-hmm. Commissioner. Nice. <laughs> Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. Thank you to Kayla, our podcaster, and Joe Bernadic coming up next with Astral Glamour. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. 
Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.